winter. Hello and welcome to What We Do in the Winter. This is the 61st episode in this series of podcasts from the Isles of Mull, Iona, Ulva, Gomatra and Erid. I'm Alistair Satchel. I live outside of Dervig in the north of Mull and I'll be your host today. In this special Christmas episode, I talk with Brigadier John McFarlane, who grew up in Tobermory and now lives in Tynalt, in a house where his family have lived for six generations. If you're listening as this goes out, a very Merry Christmas to you. I hope this finds you well and happy. We cover so much ground in this episode. John has so, so much to say about the life he lived in Tobermory as a young man. He was born just after the start of the Second World War in Tobermory, where his family ran McFarlane's shop on the main street. We talk about life in Tob in the Second World War, the roots of his family and how they came to live on Mull, the founding of Tobermory Distillery, the characters of his youth. We hear a remarkable tale about life on the island of Lunga and discuss the nature of Gaelic in the Tobermory of his youth. There's so, so much in this episode, I think we should just get straight over to John. So, without further ado, is with the greatest of pleasure that I pass you over to John McFarlane. Who are you? Well, my name's John McFarlane, and I was born and brought up in Tubermory. I was born up in 1939, days after the war started, as it were. And uh, I arrived rather quickly on the kitchen floor in, in 10 Albert Street, Tobermory, uh, which is the house at the top of Albert Street on the left-hand side, just before you reach the old churchyard. Dr. T.G. McIntyre mm-hmm. uh, was the doctor at the time, and he was in, in, uh, in present there. And we lived in, in that house, which was... Um, Really a typical Tubermory 18th century or early 19th century, two up and two down. And we had built a, a little extension at the back with a coal cellar and a, a bathroom and toilet and a small kind of scullery kitchen. But my mother spent most of her time working with a big grate that we had in the main living room where she did a lot of the baking and cooking and and so on and so forth. There's a very big productive garden at the back, which my father worked particularly during the war, and we had uh, bees there, and he he had all his potatoes and fruit, soft fruits and uh, vegetables of all kinds. There's a ruin next door uh, on towards the south of the house, which was called Ned's house. Now, <laughs> nobody, I don't know who Ned was, and maybe somebody else will know, but it was a ruin. But we also had the garden of Ned's house. And there we had about 20 hens, uh, as people did at that stage in the game. And it was quite an interesting place because there was a, obviously a well in there because there was a little running water in, in the place that the hens liked to drink at. And down below it, there was on the back pass, as we called it, there was a, a pass running up to lead out eventually onto the wee hill, the the common grazing up at the back of Tower Murray there. And um, 
there was a ruin there that was reputed to be haunted. Oh, and, yes. And as children, we get well away from it. Well, from I, it. I know someone who saw something there, um, which we'll talk to at another point in the future. But yeah, um, yeah, it, it, there's still rumours in, in the present day about that place. Yes. Well, I don't, I, I don't know. That was the way it was when I was a boy anyway. And that pass was very important because people in Albert Street could come down from their back gardens onto the pass and if necessary drive cattle and and whatnot up and then up the uh, a we called it you know uh, which led out onto the wee hill and uh, um the, you know these these back passes were all over the the top end of of Tubermory. so i was i was really a, a war baby uh, but by the time i was four or five you know, the war was coming to an end and I had plenty of memories of, of the war there. My father was one of the few people, I think, in Tormori who could speak French reasonably well. Wow. Of course, the the naval training base for the Battle of the Atlantic was in Tormori Bay with HMS Western Isles and, and uh, Admiral Sir Gilbert Stevenson, who was known as Monkey Brand, uh, that was his nickname, and he had two little moustaches here that we have a rude name for in the army, but I won't uh, mention it on, on this. And he was a really a very hard master, and he deserved to be because, I mean, they had to bring everybody up to speed the corvettes and the destroyers yeah. uh, on Astic and... Um, the, the sort of tactics for killing U-boats, uh, and um, he did a very good job. But Tomomori was full of naval ships uh, in rotation there, doing exercises and things, and and uh, a lot of international sailors, as it were. And there would be three thousand uh, of them would come ashore at a time. Good God! Uh, you know, which was hardly you can hardly credit that, but that. That's what they say. And there's a, a pier opposite the Mishnish Hotel where all the naval pinnaces came in with the sailors doing the, the, the drill with their boat hooks and whatnot. And people came ashore there. Sailors tended to drink in the Mishnish and the McDonald Arms and the officers tended to drink up at um, the West Niles. There was a... I think, a lodging house for officers ashore at a place called Dormy House behind Western Isles, uh, which is now, I think, maybe a hotel. It's a sort of uh, Art Deco building up there. And my mother at the stage was involved in the Church of Scotland Hats, which was run in the Arras Hall. And uh, all the local ladies made sandwiches and scones and all that kind of stuff. Where they got the rations from, I don't know, but uh, that was it. And that was where sailors and some of the soldiers, there was a battalion of pioneers up at Newdale. Mm -hmm. uh, and they were all, it was rather alarming because they were all recruited from people who had eyesight problems and squints and things. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> um, but they were very, I mean, pioneers, very hard-working soldiers. Yeah, yeah, so totally. they, they, they were they were up there. 
and the sailors would come in and they got their tea and their their egg banjos and their wads you know and and uh, my mother and some of them used to go over to the pier with a trolley for the Lochern, I think it was going uh -huh. out to Taree with uh -huh. the with the, the the servicemen going out to the station in Taree, and they, they they would come down and the boys came ashore and got their cup of tea and all the rest of it, and in fact I think there's a ten seconds or something of them on the pier in a film called I Know Where I'm Going, which is was all about Mull during the war. Yes. And, and and my mother always said that there was a picture of her. I've never been able to see it myself, but uh, that that's quite interesting. Wow. But um, we had lots of French, free French Navy. Really? There were uh, there were there were, I think, three destroyers in the bay. From from that, um, there was uh, Commandant Destien Dor was the name of one of them. There was the the Commandant Drogu. Mm -hmm. was another one. And the third one was a British loan ship called the Windrush. Oh, my goodness. called the Varouge. Wow. The Windrush <laughs> wasn't the Windrush that went to Jamaica and brought the folk back, was it? I don't know. No, it was, I think it was HMS Windrush. I think it was, okay. a, it was, a, they all had peculiar names. I mean, some of the corvettes had flower names, like, you know, and uh, things like that, and bird names mm -hmm. and whatnot. But um, my, our house was always full of Breton sailors oh, coming up to see my father. Beautiful, <laughs> with a Breton Gaelic. Yes, and and uh, it, I profited from that when I was a student because I went over to work as a assistant in 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 Capair. Oh, Brittany. lovely! And and I used to go out and. Um, have a fez nose. All my, my the fishermen that had been in Tormori be you know they Amazing. they all kept up with us after the war and uh, there was one called uh, Jean Perron who was um maitre pêcheur you know he was mm -hmm. a, a, a fishing a top fishing skipper and he was going out to Newfoundland oh, and, and uh, fishing out there and whatnot mm -hmm. and he lived in a place called um Concarneau uh -huh. And and I, I used to go out and, and see him quite frequently and, and others as well. So that was a good connection. But we had poles in in there were two Polish destroyers in Tobermory Bay. Wow. One was called the Buiskavitsa uh -huh. uh, and the other one was called the Grom. And I gather Buiskavitsa means lightning oh, and good. Grom means thunder. <laughs> so uh, and they were there and they took part the detachments in the final parade uh, along to Armory Main Street with a, a salute being taken at the clock uh, at the end of the war. And it was very sad for them because none of them were able to go back home. No, no. Because it was occupied by the Russians, Russians by yeah. then, as far as I can recall. Yeah. Um, I can remember also from the war seeing, I think there were uh, hurricanes used to come in and practice with... Uh, the ships in the bay, and you'd see the ships training their guns round to 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 follow the wow. attack in. And there was another thing that they used to have where they actually fired anti-aircraft attack uh, weapons at a 
plane that was carrying a, I think it was a drone away uh, out behind it, if my memory serves me right. And they would fire at that. You would see the the great crumps in the sky as the as the, the aircraft, the, the, you know, the anti-aircraft shells exploded. So it was an exciting time. And one of my earliest memories, uh, which may have been just my mother telling me about it, but I can actually hear the sound, was that to the Germans were always trying to find Tobermory. I mean, it was quite a long flight across Scotland, you yeah. know, from maybe Norway or whatever. But I can remember distinctly my mother warning, saying that that was a German plane because of the kind of noise that it made and that they, they were always looking for, for Tobermory. And if they had scored a hit, it would have destroyed the place entirely because the the old distillery yeah. bonded warehouses were absolutely full of munitions of all kinds yeah. to support the training for for uh, the Battle of the Atlantic. And it would have taken out Tobermory as a whole, I think, more or less, if that had gone off. Goodness me. So, uh, stirring times there, and a great big party up on the the park behind Tobermory, what is now Tobermory High School, uh, on 1945 on VE Day. And I can still remember that and and uh, the, uh, all the, the festivities that went on. And one of the other things that used to appeal to us as children was that the Navy used to throw a big party every year for all the village children in the Aris Hall. Yeah. And it was the only time you ever got to eat really good fruitcake and things like that. <laughs> <laughs> so there, that's the war. <laughs> My goodness. That's that's extraordinary. Um you've brought to life a whole period that I just heard hinted at before to, to hear the the akak stuff blowing up over that's extraordinary that just paints a picture so clearly so thank you very much that's extraordinary well, yeah well then let's go back a generation or two then who were your folks where had your folks come from well my great great grandfather was a john mcfarlane and he had a, a fooling and dying mill in connell but it was and was belonged to the captain of Dunstaffnage, and there seems to have been some sort of financial problem, mm -hmm. and the land was sequestered. Mm -hmm. So he became um, customs officer at uh, Dungallan in Oban, you know, mm -hmm. Gallanach, mm -hmm. and he had married quite well. The, the daughter of the taxman. Are you aware of, of what a taxman is? Uh, the associated with land taxman, T-A-C-S. Yeah. Uh -huh. he, he had a tax. Taxman had a tax of land. And in the old older days, the chief usually delegated out tax to, to his cousins or whatever. And they were the kind of senior officers of the clan. And uh, you know they were able to mobilise their subtenants and the the scavaking, you know, the mm -hmm. lower form of life, as it were, uh, in the clan. By the 18th century, you could buy a tack, yes. as it were, and, yeah. and a lot of the taxmen actually got sick to death of the clan chiefs that went off to America with their their uh, tenants. Um, and but in this case, this fellow. My my fifth great grandfather, I think he was, 
was Duncan Sinclair, and he we, had come from a long line of taxmen who had been in, in Glenkinglas at a place called Tirin and Sur. I've been up there, and it's quite interesting because there's a present house there that belongs to the the same family as James Bond. Oh, the Flemings. The Fleming. My gran was in and, service in there. Oh, were you? My gran, well, yeah, they, she was um, you're going back in the 1980s uh, up at Glenorchy yes. Way. Yes, that's right. The, yeah. the, the, they live at the head of Glenkinglass. Really. Aye, so my gran was and, uh, their, uh, their summer cook in the 1980s. Ah, oh, well, there you are. Well, we lived up there for uh, the Sinclair side of the house. Anyway, lived up there for generations. And my, my great-great-grandfather, John McFarlane, married Anne Sinclair. Now, her brother was John Sinclair, and he came over to Tobermory and he founded the distillery and the pier at Leachak there and built all the houses, particularly the ones in the back street in, in Leachak there, just next to the the, the, the distillery. And he became a very, very successful businessman. He was a multimillionaire wow. by the time he finished. I'm not quite sure what he was involved in. He had a fleet of schooners, and I suspect there may have been tobacco coming in. I don't know. But he was a very respected member of the Argyle um, sort of uh, minor gentry, as it were. Yeah. He he was a deputy lieutenant and he was a JP. And I've got a copy of a portrait of him. And he looked a jolly old chap, you know. But he was pretty hard nut. And I'll tell you another mm. story about that some other time about him. But he started the distillery and my great-great-grandfather came over as a kind of what they called a coast waiter. But I think it was uh, supervising the discharge and and of of cargo. All right. But I think he was also working as the in the with the bonded warehouse. I'm not sure about that. But that's the but he did come over and and uh, work in Tabermoy, and I don't know where he's buried, but he's probably in the old graveyard at the head of uh, Albert Street. So he he stayed on in Tabermoy, and his son was the chief maltman for John Sinclair, and he, um, poor fellow, died of cirrhosis of the liver eventually, because they, they, all the, the workmen, even in my Fathers used used to get a big measure of what they called kuchan, which was the white spirit, Ooh. the first thing, the and first they draft. got that every day as part of their wages. Oof. So <laughs> there was quite a considerable amount of minor drunkenness, I'm sure, every day mm. uh, in Tobermory at that stage because of the 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 work in the distillery and the this issue of kuchan that they. They got every day. Wow. So they, they were there since about, well, certainly my great-great-grandfather was there by about 1806. And he had a, he had a son who was also living over in uh, Morvin. And there was a lot of toing and froing between Morvin and Tobermory. And in fact, John Sinclair eventually owned a considerable amount of, of, of uh, Morvin and founded the little town at, at Lochalen, 
So um, there were ties like that. My grandfather, who was also a John McFarlane, Malcolm McFarlane, his father had been kicked out of um, Lochalan by one of the ministers. There was a long dynasty of ministers there, uh, McLeods, who eventually finished up with George McLeod, who was the founder of the the Iona community. And um, I think he was a, a pretty fiery chap, this Malcolm, and he, I think he was opposing the the policies of the Church of Scotland and whatnot. And I think he got run out of town. You know? wow. He certainly went to Skye, but they eventually came back there. And my grandfather went down to Glasgow, as they all did, uh, to, to find work. And he became a warehouse man, but he came back to Tobermory to help his cousins, who were the Blacks, who owned Blacks' land. And I think they were they were they had a a shop of some kind, and one of the blacks was an epileptic, and although a very able man, you know, he needed somebody to support him, and that's what my grandfather did. But my grandfather then started out on his own, and we had a business at Ten Main Street, and the house. They lived in, the, there was a whole big, long family of them, uh, a big Victorian family, and they lived in the, the two flats up above, uh, which was called Sinkler's Land at that stage, but eventually became known as McFarland's Land. Mm. And it joined all the other lands there, like Cromer's Land, Graham's Land, Black's Land, Brown's Land. Uh, you know, there were, there were all these lands along and uh, he ran a business from there, and he was a JP mm-hmm. and liberal agent for uh, Mull, and um, he was the agent for McCallum Orm, which was the, the um, a firm that preceded David McBrain. And he also took the, on the thing for David McBrain as well, I think, eventually. And, and uh, it, it was, he, was, he was quite a man. As a JP, one of the old men in Tobermory told me that he was cruel cast, that he was hard, mm, but fair, but he right. was fair yeah. uh, in the courtroom. So, <laughs> yeah. so they ran a, a very successful croft up uh, the Craig Spewer Road, which uh, the late Ian McKinnon was oh. farming eventually. Goodness and, me. And um, it's quite interesting when I go up there, you can see the buyers and everything that they had in a little enclosure. And my grandmother, who was a McLean, uh, from, uh, connected with the Derrick McLeans, and was born and brought up in Ballygown. Oh, yeah. Uh, her mother was a Campbell, and in, in, in the Campbells had been in Ballygown and in Lunga and Treshnish yes. for centuries before that. But the Croft, it had a Spanish chestnut tree growing in it that my grandmother had planted. And it's nice to see it, you know. Goodness well, me. it was there the last time I was able to walk up there. But um, it, the, they had a very successful business there. And, and um, my eldest uncle 
it's a long story that, and it might deserve another story at another time. But he he actually wanted to go to sea, and John McFarlane, my grandfather, wouldn't uh, allow him to go, but got him a job on one of McBrain's or McCallum Orm, you know, the Hebrides or one of these boats. That was boring as far as he's concerned. He wanted to be a blue water sailor. Wow. And he got um, a my grandfather agreed eventually for him to go as a naval seaman, well, an ordinary seaman, on um, the three-masted barks that sailed out of Glasgow with Maclay, uh, the company, Maclay Company. They were called the Loch Line. Yes. And um, I've just written a whole uh, life of Malcolm McFarlane uh, because he's quite an incredible chap. And he got his skipper's ticket in sail uh, going round the Horn to Australia and tramping all round the world. And I've got a lot of letters from him and discharge certificates and things. And he he um, eventually turned to steam. He eventually became a master mariner. Mm. And unfortunately, he was drowned off uh, uh, the coast of Ireland. But uh, he was torpedoed by mm. a German U-boat on the... Uh, 28th of September 1918, just before the end of the war, mm. and he had sent a last letter home to them saying that he was going to be sailing past the mouth of Tullamore Bay on a Sunday, mm. and if they went down to Runagal, mm. he would blow his horn on the boat as it went past, and uh, they could wave, so they were down there with all their sheets and things to wave, and the boat never came. And uh, he's, you know, he's, his body is, is either in uh, in the deep, as it were, or maybe he's uh, ashore as an unknown seaman of the First mm-hmm. World War. It's very difficult to tell. That was a great <laughs> shock to the family, as it were. Well, and um, my father went into the Marines to released my uncle Kenny, of whom there'll be another tale at some stage, so that he could come home out of the army to become the head of the family, as it were. And there's another uncle who's a lieutenant in the King's Royal Rifle Corps in in France. And But Kenny came out and um, took over the, the family business. So we've been in Tobermory, um since about Certainly 1800, and possibly before that, as a family. So we feel we're very Tobermory boys and girls. That you you had um, Campbells and Lunga in the family and Treshnish. Yes. What are are there any tales that come to mind of uh, Lunga at all? Yes, the one that came was actually a Campbell of Kilmore uh, or or Glenfogen, 
there were Campbells and there were sort of taxmen of, of that kind of class as well. And when Mull was taken over by the Campbells, you know, because they, they paid the debts of the Maclean's and so on and so forth, they they ceded a lot of these places with their own people. And the older brother had a tack and certainly farm and ground in Kilmore, just outside Oban, uh, at a place called Crakentackerst. Oh, right, and, gosh. Uh, uh, up the glen a bit. Yeah. And all my John McFarlane's children, when he had been had the dying mill, were all baptised in that church in, in, in Kilmore because they were in that parish. And uh, the younger brother went to Mull, and as far as I can make out, he was given the tack of the Tresnish. Wow. Or certainly was a maybe even a subtenant, I'm not quite sure. Mm. But he lived on Lunga. Goodness me. And you'll see the cottages there yet where they lived. And they were over there, you know, for quite a number of generations. The first one there was John Campbell. And obviously he had a son who was killed there when they were collecting cookers or whatever on the Harp Rock. Uh, and I gather there were two or three masts laid across uh, from the mainland of Lunga itself to the Harp Rock so that they could go across and go down uh, on a rope. And there was a boat down below. There would be a, a rowing boat or whatever down below. And they rang the necks of the, 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 the birds and dropped them down and they were collected there in, in the boat. And he must have fallen because there was a ledge there, apparently, on the half rock, which was called Uri Vichyan Chaimbov, uh, the kind of ledge or, or hiding place or whatever Uri is, um, of John Campbell's son. And they were there for generations, and one of them married a Katrina McKinnon, in a public marriage which lasted for three days <laughs> and um, it, it, she was left on the island one time on her own it, with the children and whatnot and the other women had gone off over to Mull to cut peat and the men were away hunting geese on Tyree and they weren't likely to be back for 10 days or maybe even longer. And she was there keeping home fires burning, as it were. But one night when she went to bed, she was woken up during the night by a, a spectre of some kind or a dream uh, which said, Awake, Katrina. The, the fire is going out, and she ran down, or ran into the main room where the, there would be the fire in the middle of the floor, I think, and the, the, it was just about out, and she was able to coax it into life again. Otherwise, she and the children would have been without any means of heating or cooking or anything until everybody else came back with their flinders and, fl you know, their... Yeah. Uh, flints and, and tinder boxes and things. Gosh. So um, that's a story about about Langa. 
at that stage. But they moved eventually over. Donald Campbell, one of the sons, came over to Ballygown, and they were he died when he was a hundred. Oh and my father is actually was actually Donald was actually named after him. And he must have had I would have loved to have spoken to him because he must have had the most incredible stories of Lunga itself and the kind of life that was ha happening in that area at that time. It's so remote, it really is. It's um Yeah. It's because uh, uh, Frank Fraser Darling was the last person I knew of that, that lived on the island. His book is that uh, so? Yes, uh, island, yes island years. Um, he's got a book about that, and it was it's pretty brutal the, the way they describe it. Um, I thought, yeah, it's quite something. But... Yeah, they were a hard, they were a hard bunch actually, and and um, Ballygown's not a very big place, mm. but a big farm. But they they also you know. They, you know, were quite successful in farming there. And in fact, my eldest aunt, my father's eldest sister, was over there as a pupil teacher in the late 1800s and early part of the 1900s mm -hmm. uh, at the, the little school at Ballygown there and eventually in Derwig as well, uh, where she was staying with some of her Maclean relatives. You know, they, they were there uh, a long time, and my father always spoke very fondly of going over to, to Ballygown um, on a wagonette from Tobermory. Goodness me, uh, what's a wagonette? It's, it's, a, it's a big, long wagon with seats in it and, and room for, uh, you know, carrying uh, goods and things, uh, and probably pulled by about three or four horses. Right. And he said that they used to have sacks of uh, salted herring, I think, were being taken over the country, as they called it, uh, at that stage. And and it, they were hung on the axle trees, I think, and so that the juice wouldn't mm. drip down onto the cart mm. itself, Oof. but onto the road. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and, and they went over there and they... They always spoke, uh, you know, my aunts and, and uncles all spoke very um, kindly of the, the time that they used to spend at Ballygown and Dunagail, you know, down below mm. there. They used to play down there. Really? Uh, where, mm. At the old, um, the old Cranog, and at the old um, bur uh, Broch? It, yeah, so it's a bar, I guess it were, you yeah. know, down there and... Uh, um, it's probably a broch, yeah. It is, yeah, uh, yeah it's a broch, yeah. yeah. It's, I've, I've got a, yeah. a book about such things here just beside me, actually. Um, that's, I mean, so were, the, were they conscious of the, of the wee houses on the shore there as well then at that time? Were they lived in those wee houses at Ballygown on the shore? It, it probably. There may have been some tenants and things. Yeah. They had they had quite a big family themselves, um, many of whom are scattered all over the world. You know, uh, mm. I, I'm in contact with a family in New Zealand. Wow. <laughs> they are direct, they're cousins of mine, as it were, from there. And um, I, I think they would probably, I mean, from the censuses, they seem to have servants and people, wow. and, you know, plowmen and all that. Well, they've done well thing. then, yes, gosh. So the, 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 they must have been doing quite well. Yeah. And it's difficult for us to realize the kind of life that these people had. But, totally. um, yeah. Hmm. 
Let's return to Tobermory then. Um, two things I want to know about um, are um, the life of the shop. What 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 was in the shop? Um, you know what was what was stocked, and who were the staff? Who were the people that came in? And also any of the older characters you can remember from when you were a young boy as well. Who were the old Badich and Kaich around town? Yeah, and Kaliach and well, uh, my father actually, Kenny, my my el, my uncle was a dreamer and a poet and not totally in touch with reality in a, in a kind of a, Sounds like a fine very man. nice way. <laughs> yeah. Um, he wrote poetry on the back of uh, cigarette packets and whatnot. But he actually, when my grandfather died of a heart attack in 1917 and Malcolm, the, the, the sailing ship skipper, was still alive at that stage, and then was die, died in, in uh, when he was torpedoed. The responsibility for the family then moved to to Kenny, and Kenny was not your most practical guy. A lovely man, but not your most practical guy. And he was given a shop, which is on the site of the present museum. Oh, aye, and. I don't know what kind of shop it was, but he was in there. And my father took out quite a large loan and um, bought 28 Main Street, uh, which is now a Chinese restaurant, Mm -hmm. and all the the flats up above it in, in, in that land there and behind it. And he started a very, very successful business there we had a grocery department which sold everything from, you know, big mubachakin of cheese, mm. you know, cake, cakes of cheese, big casts of butter, sugar in the brown bags, you know, cones, and yeah. a, a machine that cut Danish ham and whatnot, and bacon and whatnot. And it was an old, traditional, old-fashioned grocer shop in one end with a long, long, on the right-hand side with a long counter, really, there. And at another end, there was a drapery department where they sold boots and tackety boots and uh, suits and tweed suits and clothing for uh, people, shepherds and people going into the outdoors and they sold flies for the fishermen going up to the mission lochs and you name it, they sold it in that bit there. And Kenny got a bit tired of trimming the lamps and all the rest of it at night in this other shop that he had and he gradually started coming over to my father's shop and eventually they they sold on the, the shop, other shop and he just stood behind, lurked behind a counter there and yeah. it, it, it became a bit of an institution and everybody across Mullen knew my father Donald and and my, my uncle Kenny and it was a kind of ongoing Kaylee in there oh, all day wow. because people would come in from across the, the, the country, you know, from Burrock and down from Penny Gale and uh, where not, and come in to get their meal from the meal store that they had at the back. 
and people used to come from um, muck and, and egg and whatnot. There's a family of McAllisters used to come from muck and they would appear in a, a, a launch with no lights or anything uh, and come in and they would order their, their sacks a meal and they would then go to the mishnish and get roaring. Yes. And they would come outside and stand with their backs against the wall and challenge all comers, you know. Um, <laughs> they used to say, Ike the race, you know. Oh, my God. Come on. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and then at the end of the day, they would put the sacks on their backs, go down the steps uh, at the at the, the McBrain's Pier there, dump them into the launch, and they would go off into the, the dark, you know, out oh, from gosh. at the northern point. You know? <laughs> That's something else. The Spoo Ten, they called them, the Spoo Ten, you know. Right. Uh, that was their nickname. Wow. And that happened regularly, you know, <laughs> when they came in. They're all kinds of violence. And a spoot and a ching. And the spoot and a ching. And a spoot and a ching. And there was, um, oh, all kinds of very interesting people came into the shop and came to talk. To, and Kenny had a wonderful fund of folklore mm. from uh, from the north end of Mull. Wow. And and a very good grasp of um, police names and everything. And there are several recordings of him in uh, the School of Scottish Studies in Tupper and Dualich. Ah, lovely. Uh, That's just the best. About, I love that. Uh, you know, but, uh, you know the, the place names and, and uh, traditions of the place. And he wrote, he wrote some lovely poetry. Um, I've got a box in here full of all his stuff. And he wrote a short story, which is quite a good one. But, you know, it's all written in indelible pencil. Mm. And, I mean, it may be indelible, but you can hardly read any of it now. And as I say, some of it are literally on fag packets. Yeah. But, uh, uh, and did he, he write in Gaelic or English? Both. Wow. And he wrote, in, uh, the English poetry tends to be in the style of Wordsworth, okay. or yeah. you know that that kind of thing, and and um, he never married, and um, my uncle Malcolm, who was drowned, mm -hmm. um, had bought Penalbanach mm -hmm. cottage in in in, in Street there, mm -hmm. uh, for he was going to he had a fiance who was uh, a McKelly. There was a, a man in Tormora called Kelleher, that was his name, nickname, and and she she was related to him in some way. I'm not quite sure, but of course he never he never came home to claim the house. Mm -hmm. And um, eventually, my grandmother Janet McLean, when my grandfather died, she moved in there right. and stayed with Uncle Kenny until until she died. You know. And then Kenny was there uh, as a bachelor into his old age, um, tending the garden and and coming down and helping my father, you know. Well, in some helping him in some way or another. Uh, but it, the, it was a, it was an incredible place. The back end of the place was full of iron mongery of all kinds. They had a meal store at the back, which was full of oatmeal and 
they did a bit of ship channeling as well, mm -hmm. you know, ropes and stuff like that. Uh, it was an incredible place. I used to go there when I was a little boy, and it was like a, a heaven as far as I was concerned, because there would be casks of of uh, prunes and things like that, and mm. uh, raisins, and mm. you know, uh, smelling it amazing. Was, yeah. Oh, it's an amazing place to be a little boy, and and uh, we had a series of. Uh, Message boys, you know, there's one called Bobby Butter. Mm -hmm. Yes. Uh, who, Mac McLean, yeah, who was there, and um, Archie Black, uh, who lived next door in Farge, he was a message boy for a while. Jimmy Henderson, who eventually became the agent in, in the pier in Tibermory. Yeah. Uh, he, he was a message boy for a while there, and mm. they delivered around the, the town, you know, to, to various people with these great big wicker baskets and, and, and things. And, and it was, it, it, McFarlane's shop was an institution and it's a counterpart at the other end was Brown's shop. Of course, shop, yeah. My father was a long life, lifelong teetotaler mm -hmm. and wouldn't have a license, yeah. but Brown's had the license and, and they specialised in, uh, you know, iron mongery and and um, selling booze as well. Mm -hmm. So you know, it was, uh, they were they complemented one another in some way. And the place was full of. Uh, there was a very good bakery there. Um, when you walked down the middle brae, you know, in the morning, you could smell the yeasty smell coming up from the 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 bakery there. And uh, there were three brothers that. Uh, uh, ran it, they were under the name of Doogie Do Little, Davy Do Less, and Beam Do Nothing at All. <laughs> <laughs> the relatives are probably in Tullamore, yes, so maybe I'll get lynched if I. <laughs> I think you've got privilege to do that. that. The, yeah. <laughs> yeah, that was, that was, and I mean, it was a very good bakery, um, which sold all kinds of of bread and rolls and, and so on and so forth. And, and, um, you know, there were, there were there was a very good butchers, Nila the butcher and Donnelly mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, the butcher uh, in Tavermory mm -hmm. there, um, Donnelly Cameron, I think he was. You know, they had their rig, and then there was another little butcher shop next to ours, where just beside the co-op, which was run by uh, Malcolm McLean, who was called Kavamuk. Mm -hmm who had been called up in the war and was a very, very successful uh, NCO in one of the big tank regiments. I think it might have been the fourth tank regiment. And they were on Operation Torch and right up through Italy. Gosh. And he got wounded eventually, the chap with a, a, a German threw one of these potato masher grenades into the, into the turret. And his head was just uh, covered with shrapnel. Which used to come out because yes. I, I used to work for him, and it, when he was in um, Nila's butcher shop, which was in the museum where mm. uh, the museum is now, mm -hmm. and you know he sort of produced a piece that yeah. worked out, and uh, he was he was um, a wonderful man, you know. I. I I learned a lot about the war and everything from him, you know, and he, 
he had a brother uh, who they lived up in Abiona in Victoria Street in Tavermory there, and his brother came back and became a market gardener up uh, behind the Western Isles Hotel there. And he had one of these Bren gun carriers <laughs> that he used to drive about. Yeah. But he had been, uh, that was Willie, and he was known as Willie Polite because he was very, very polite man. He had been in self-propelled guns and during the war in Italy as well. And he and Callum used to have terrible rivalry with one another. You know, Callum used to say that he had been in, you know, through mud and blood to the green fields beyond. Yeah. <laughs> and and Willie would say, ah, but the gunners are the ones that take the knocks and all this yeah. kind of stuff. And they used to have great rivalry. It was good fun to go over and sit with them beside the fire over there in Victoria Street. And it just... Uh, listen to them talking about uh, all this and they would have a drum at the same time and and um, you know you learn an awful lot from them as people yes. and there were other people like that in Victoria Street as well there were two brothers lived down the road in Victoria Street who were called um, Callum and Seamus Ian Van and they they used to come home every night from their crofts up the road with a big bundle of dried twigs on their backs. And they used to sit at night in the house there and just feed the, 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 the fire and just sit and chat uh, by the side of the fire. But they had both been at the Klondike. Really? Yes. Goodness yeah. me, I didn't know that at all. Yeah. What, what were they doing? As had Seamus and Van and Callum and Van, you know, they, they had been... Uh, at the Klondike, as had um, Shoney Gowen, the 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 old uh, blacksmith in Tubermory, who's the quote the grandfather of the present Janet Macdonald. You know, he he had all kinds of. He was a wonderful storyteller, many of which were almost unbelievable. Yeah. <laughs> but, uh, you know, were worth listening to. And uh, do you remember I any of the to... tales at all that he would tell? Um, well, I remember one time he was taking the mickey out of a guy called Soiken, who was um, McIntyre, I think, who lived in Argyle Terrace. And people, the Botich used to meet in the in the Kartach, in the in the smithy there, where it was nice and warm, and they would sit and smoke their pipes and talk. And um, Angie Henderson, the 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 blacksmith, would be. Going there, and I used to have a be given the privilege of pulling the sage, and you know, mm, the it's a very polished uh, horn handle on the thing, as far as I can recall. And you, you would, you know, get the fire going to the temperature that he wanted. Mm. I remember Shuni Gowen telling a story that he had been in um, some township in Canada where they were all Chinese. And he was taking the mickey out of McIntyre because he was telling Soiken, you know, that every one of them was a McIntyre. <laughs> and he once told me that he had seen Sarstapin, you know, the mountain on the right-hand side going to Derby. Mm -hmm. 
uh, an eruption and that there were great boulders being thrown up into the air and all that. And as a little boy, I, I, I used to believe him, you know. Oh, that's gorgeous. Yeah. <laughs> no, there are a lot of things. And uh, I mean, I remember Angie Henderson was very good with the stories as well because he had some good poems, you know. Mm. There was a fellow called Echen Heeks lived in one of the uh, houses in Bredalbin Street, just next to Quillane, where mm -hmm. the yep. Langemel, the, the, you know, Alan Langemel and, and people like that lived. Echen Heeks, uh, Keeks was the nickname, I don't know, but he was known as Echen Heeks, and he had a sister there called, I think it was Mary Heeks. But he was a great local kind of, Bard, you know, with with scurrilous little verses and things mm. that he would make up, and I remember Angie used to quote something that he had quoted about my grandfather, John McFarlane, who was known as Ian Achgrach, mm. hungry John, you know, <laughs> and I think he was a very kind of ambitious man, you know, and ambitious for his children and all the rest of it. You know, he's always taking on new things and and. Uh, but he, there was a poem which said he must have had a horse or it could have been a reference to my grandmother. I'm not quite sure. <laughs> but it, it, it said, Horo shot a cheating. You know, Horo, here he comes. Horo, come of grime. Horo, keep a, get a grip, you know, or yeah. keep, keep yourself safe, you know. And uh, John McFarlane is very fearful. Gungad in Czech Sparkach Skyn that the the horse with the bandy feet legs uh, will take a turn, you know, for the worse. Oh my <laughs> well, goodness! Uh, and then there's shoot the necker with the hounders. Hounder apparently was what he called. The shoot horseshoes. Shoot the jacket, will the hounder, Dunya Pongal and Skier, you know, a very uh, clever man uh, steering it. <laughs> you know, this is the horse. Yeah. And it goes on and on like this. Oh, but that's, that's the only bit that I remember. You don't realise how much poverty there was in Tumormori. There was an old woman called Lady Jane who lived in um, there's a close just at the bottom of the East Braid behind the bookshop. Mm -hmm. Yes. And she lived in there and she literally had no money. Yeah. And my mother, my grandmother used to send a bowl of porridge over to her and a jug of, a big bowl of porridge and a jug of milk. And when my father delivered it to her as a little boy, she used to say, oh, and Baniel Gluachford, you know, oh, the yeah. precious milk. That's and awesome. that was probably the only food that she got in the day, and she was reduced to eating murach. What a murach? That's uh, sea, seafood, you know, shellfish. Aye. That's a tale that I've heard again and again from folk. The, yeah, that it's yeah. when when they get onto the um the which limpets that's the worst. Yes, that's right. 
the used to call it in Gaelic Ekvedach, you know, they were oh, sorry, they were having to teach, uh, you know, limpets and I mean, we used to go way down to Ardmore when I was a little boy with a tin, uh, one of these uh, uh, syrup tins and a wire stuck through to it so you can hold it. We used to make a wee fire down at Ardmore there and gather all the wilks together mm. and have a pin and we used to eat it down there yeah. just for fun, you know. But th- th- for these people, it was serious. Well, that makes me ask then about Gaelic in the community. When you were growing up, how much Gaelic was in the community? It was a Gaelic-speaking place. I mean, there were obviously incomers. There were Nitrosi, they called them, who had come down from Montrose mm-hmm. and had brought their fishing boats with them. Oh, right. And I think they were Yules and mm-hmm. Nobles mm-hmm. were the main family. I remember my mother saying that she would, she was walking along past Cromer's land one day and there was an old woman with a black drugget dress and a kind of match on sitting outside and my mother said to her, give it a hash of a Jew, you know, and the woman said to him, and she said, I'm sorry dearie, I didn't hear the Gaelic <laughs> you know oh. <laughs> and she was one of the, the people that had come down, there was a lack of fishing or something in the North right. Sea right. and they had come round with their boats to the, the West Coast and they became very integrated into Tomormori society. Very much so, yeah, very, very much so. One of them was a, a skipper in on three massive barks as well, as far as I can recall, Gosh. Johnny Noble, or he was certainly a seaman on, on them. And, you know, there were other people there um, that were at sea like that, and it was very much respected. Mm-hmm. Um, but as a, a community, it was more or less Gaelic speaking. I mean, there were 11 houses, I think, in, in Albert Street, starting with ours. Mm-hmm. And in all of the houses except one, there were Gaelic speakers. Cursets, who had a um, plumber's shop mm-hmm. at the top of the uh, uh, Albert Street on the right-hand side. I don't think he had Gaelic, but certainly the boys had, had it because they... They had to learn it in school, you yeah, know, yeah, play in the playground in the school. Next door to them, there was uh, two uh, maiden ladies, uh, victims of the lack of men at the end of the First World War. Yeah. One of them was the, the local district nurse, a very formidable lady. And uh, her sister was uh, had been an ex-school teacher over Nardamachan or somewhere, and she stayed there. Mm-hmm. Opposite us, we had the Donden. Duncan mm-hmm. McKinnon, and uh, he had a whole load of children, and they lived in the bottom two rooms of of uh, that house opposite us, which was called Lafin Cottage, because it referred to a township in Glengoram from which the family had originally come. I mean, the McKinnons were a very ancient uh, clan in the north of Mull, mm-hmm. and he was a wonderful man, ex-soldier uh, in the First World War, Scottish horse, and then Aitzer Giles, and he had been posted out to, with the battalion to Tiflis uh, uh, at the end of the First World War to support the white Russians. Goodness me. And there's a story about him being elected to have the short straw to nip out. They were confined to barracks, but they had to nip out to get some drink, and he was deputed to go over the wall and go down into the local uh, 
place to get it, and he was surrounded by these Georgians or whoever it was when he when he came in there, and he thought he was in trouble, but he had got the booze, and so he put his hands in his mouth and whistled, and they all dispersed because they thought he had a crowd of of, of Scottish soldiers outside waiting for him, and he just managed to make his escape and back into the barracks with the booze. Oh, but he was a, he was a wonderful man. He had a he had a Croft up in Craigspewer between uh, the end of the lane in Craigspewer and the old village of Craigspewer, uh, which you can still see the ruins of. And he farmed that very successfully. And uh, I spent my use with uh, my friend Gavin McKinnon, who is his son, and we herded the cows up there and brought them back and, and uh, they were milked and so on and so forth. And, and uh, the byre at the back of the, the place was full of hay, which we used to tramp, you know, to make it tra- tramp down. We always used to get hay fever. Of course, <laughs> yeah. And uh, the Dondon uh, would, on a Saturday night, he got himself all beezed up. He had a bucket of hot water out at the back uh, of the house and he would wash himself in there, shave with a mirror and mm-hmm. and uh, get his fresh shirt on and and uh, off he would go down for uh, his weekly drink in the business. And he laid out one of the Macron brothers, who was the first back from uh, Dunkirk, oh, uh, in, in the bar of the business, because the uh, the guy said that the Aether Giles were throwing away their rifles as they were heading for Dunkirk. And he said, he said to Mahon Regiment and banged him. Down he went. Um, so you know, he was a he was a very interesting character and plenty Gallic. Yeah. And his wife had the, the same amount. The children could understand, but they always re- answered in English. Right. Uh, which was a shame. Yeah. And then there was Angus MacLeod, who was a um down below us, his family were known as the Ahons, because uh-huh, because his father used to say, if anyone said anything to him, he would say, oh, 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 like that, you know. <laughs> so they were known as the Ahons. There we go. Gosh. And Angus, I think he had been a chauffeur at, at uh, Glengorham Castle. And um, his father was inordinately proud of this. And if anybody said they had been over at Glengorham, he used to say, he used to be very impressed because that he had the leggings on, yeah. leather leggings and a uniform as a, as a chauffeur. Goodness <laughs> but he was a wonderful crofter and he kept us supplied with rabbits and hares during the war because um, he had lines of snares out. Right. And he used to cut bochen, you know, the the from the groves of of hazel trees, uh, which were made into um, either fencing or creels. And, oh and yeah, yeah. He was a great guy. Next door, there was an ex-soldier who had for who had found scribrua, uh-huh. and he had one arm. Eventually, he retired on Albacete, but he used to come around with a cart with all the milk. Uh, in it in great big, uh, um, uh, you know, kind of uh, churns, yeah. 
turns and and a, a tap where you could measure out, you know, a pint of milk or whatever. And he had a small one as well that was full of cream. Oh, hello. And uh, he used to light his pipe by putting his matchbox under his arm like that and striking it and then it lighting his pipe. Gosh. And he, he farmed that farm with one arm. Goodness me, that's skill and a half. Yeah. That's amazing. And down below him was Adam Brown, his grandfather, I think, who was another Adam Brown who had been a commander in the Royal Naval Reserve, I think, and was the watchman aboard the Loch and Bar. And he had plenty of garlic. And my aunt lived in a place called Rinella, which is a house on Albert Street there in a little lane off the side. Mm-hmm. And they had plenty Gaelic as well, although she was married to a, an engineer in the PO fleet who eventually became the Commodore engineer of the PO fleet. Wow. Uh, Tom McKerracher. And his son, Alistair, who was my first cousin, he became an engineer in the PO as well, and then eventually a priest in the Anglican church down in Devon. And uh, his sister, Janet, who was in, an officer in the Queen, Queen Alexandra's Royal Army Nursing Corps, uh, but came home to, uh, to look after her mother and um, eventually became the matron of the little cottage hospital and old folks' home that was in Gruelin mm-hmm. and was very much loved there because she was a real mull woman and understood all the old Botnik and Catholic were in the in the house there, and, and uh, you know, she ran the hospital more or less single-handed down, down there. So they were all, and was there Alan... Not, sorry, sorry? Um, was there not a Frenchman in number 13, Bradalbin Street, on the corner there of Albert Streets? Um, the, at the end, do you mean at the corner of, of Bradalbin Street and Victoria Street? Uh, I thought it was uh, Albert Street, but I could be wrong. Um, uh, where... Uh, opposite where Jimmy Malloy Roger, used to Roger have. Felter, was that Roger? Oh, maybe that's exactly who it was, yes, yeah. Yeah, yeah. He, he appeared at the end of the war, I don't know where he came from, but he they lived eventually up in, in Drumfune, somewhere up there. Mm. there. Um, no, the, the, I mean, when you went down, there was the Dean, there was a fellow called the Dean, they lived down at the end of Albert Street there, mm-hmm. and he had Gaelic as well. Mm-hmm. And, and um, the, yeah, I mean, I was brought up in an atmosphere. I mean, I went to Tavermory Primary School at, at five, and I think a lot of our education was in Gaelic until mm-hmm. we got up into infants two or infants three, you know. Uh, I certainly was bilingual by the age of seven, but mostly Gaelic before then, because my father and mother always talked to my sister and myself in Gaelic in the house, you know. It's brilliant. What would you say, because, you know, dialects are slowly disappearing within Gaelic uh, as it falls away from common everyday use. And there's certain places where, you know, there's family words and there are still certain dialects of, um, that are alive. What would yeah. you say the dialectical features of Tobermory Gaelic as opposed to Dervig Gaelic or, you know, Gaelic from Benesson would be? Are there any that stand out to you particularly? Well, 
I find it very hard to, to, to distinguish that sort of thing because I spent most of my time, my father was very busy. I mean, he was down in the shop at mm. nine o'clock in the morning and he didn't appear until nine at night. And people used to knock at the door of the shop if they were shot or something or other. And, you know, he'd be there until about nine at night. So my Gaelic tended, from my mother's side, tended to be Lorne Gaelic. Wow. From Canal, because my, my mother's people had been in the village here since at least 1692. Goodness. Uh, and, I mean, I've, I've gone back in, you know, the family tree as far as that. And she had a beautiful lawn Gaelic. She had come over to Tubermory to teach Gaelic in uh, the Tubermory school. And mm -hmm. uh, D.N. Lowe was the, the headmaster at the time. And met my father and married him in 1929. Um, so my Gaelic was really lawn Gaelic. But, I mean, I spoke a lot of Gaelic to my father and, and, and to Kenny and... Mm -hmm. and my aunts and people like that. I think Tubermory Gaelic was characterised here. The vowel system is different. Mm -hmm. And whereas in Mull or in Tubermory for hey or something like that mm -hmm. would say fear. Mm -hmm. But here they say fair. Interesting. And, uh, and in Mull, we do a lot of glottal stops in the middle of the, mm -hmm. the word. Mm -hmm. Meeting, you know, meeting or meeting, you know. Yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, and um, there's that kind of thing. I think Tubermory Gaelic was very um, recognisable as a separate dialect, really. Yeah. And there were, I was very friendly with a family called Robertson who lived in Victoria Street. Mm -hmm. And particularly latterly, when I was in the army, I was very friendly with Willie Robertson, who was the son of Callum Robertson, who had been the skipper of the Loch and Bar. They lived in, in Victoria Street there. He had, and his brother Ian Robertson, whom I did a radio programme with one time uh, from the end of the old pier in Tubermory. Mm. Uh, and Ian was full of Gaelic, Tubermory Gaelic, you know. And that was a wonderful program because it really gave a, an insight into both Tubermory Bay mm -hmm. and Tubermory Gaelic. Mm -hmm. And uh, but Willie and I were very friendly until he died. He had a house down in Fairham in Hampshire, and I was posted to Winchester. And I used to go down frequently at weekends to see him. We had a friend of ours who was a Pole called Walter Windling. He was the, remained after the war and was the inspector of small shipping for the West Coast here. We met up frequently uh, down there, and, and Willie had the most wonderful Gaelic as well, as had his father. And um, although his father might have been influenced by his wife, who came from Col, mm. <laughs> I think the family came from Col originally. Uh, but, I mean, next door, there was a fellow called Peter Neon Vaud mm -hmm. in Victoria State. There was a stevedore on the pier and had, his, had a croft up uh, 
us when we were little boys were terrified of going through his crow because he used to chase us waving ah. his stick. <laughs> and here a croft just past St Mary's Well on the right hand side you look up and there was a ruined old byre there near a place called the Toast Beak. Mm-hmm. His mother was practically monolingual I think. Wow. And uh, I mean I remember one time <laughs> she had been outside uh, polishing a, a doorstep or something like that and Peter Neon Roar fell over on his backside coming out the door with his tacky boots and he was <laughs> shouting to her, you'll probably have to erase this, but he was shouting to her, Jim Booker Polishing show, you know. <laughs> Fantastic. I'm well, keeping that. There's no two ways about it. That's great. <laughs> and one oh. time there was a very, very black sailor from the Free French Navy was walking up Victoria Street there and she was standing at the door and she wasn't exactly a picture of beauty herself, but my father was going past and she said, Oh, God, you know, isn't he ugly, you know? And he was horrified because the chap was understanding and I think he said to her, uh, and some coffee, I should That's exactly it. Yeah, totally the right answer. Yes. Goodness me. You're not so you're not so beautiful yourself. You know. Yeah. You know that was typical of the 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 kind of Gaelic that was being taught in 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 the place and then in Victoria Street. I mean, you go down there. There was there was a lady called uh, at the top end. I don't think she had Gaelic, but opposite there was a family of Morrisons, and they had plenty of Gaelic. Mm-hmm. His nickname was Farrakhan. Mm-hmm. Next down at Dunallister's were cousins of my own. They had plenty of Gaelic. Then on Victoria Street, uh, there was Dunachapechti Alanyulvai. Dunachapechti, he had, I see one of his sons in the old folks' home uh, oh, wow. in North Connell, he's now Seamus and Tyler. Right. They had plenty of Gaelic. I can remember when they came to school with my sister. She told me this that they were older, much older than me. And and uh, if the teacher wanted them to go out to the toilet, they used to say, "No lupans to make." <laughs> oh, you know, yeah. uh, you know, a little, I can't make a little pool. You know, I don't yeah. need to make a little pool. You know. Oh, I love uh, that. So they they were they were Gaelic speaking from births, yeah. and and um, Sandy Gould, there was a, a, a Crofters at a Croft up the Crikespure Road there. He had been a sergeant major in the First World War. He had plenty Gaelic. Gosh. Then there was Punch across the road. He had plenty Gaelic. There were McAllisters who were travelling folk. Yes, yeah. Down the road. Um, they, they had Gaelic because the mother was from Tinalti, as she was at Johnston. Mm-hmm. And uh, then there was the Dingan family living down. They were Camerons, I think. Right. And that was n- named after a Zulu chief. I don't know. Their... Wow. Yeah, uh, that was their nickname, uh, the Dingans. And, um, I wonder how that came about. I don't know. Probably a, a, a thing from the the boar uh, the South African war yeah. probably because there was a fellow in the 
in Tavarmori had a dog, and it was called Bular because that was the name of one of the big generals there, and he used to shout, Bular, take a shot, you know. <laughs> <That's> <laughs> and I don't know whether he had been in the South African War, and then there was Pete then, well, Seamus and Callum and Van, they had plenty of Gaelic, and then next to him, Pete and he owned Vaux uh, and plenty of Gaelic, and then there was a woman, Gibson, there, who was a sister of the Dondan, Mm-hmm. The Dondon, and she was married to a chap called Guy Gibson, who had been shot through the head in the First World War, and he suffered very badly mm-hmm. with that. But she had plenty of Gaelic as well. Amazing. And Ul Mahgoor had a had a buyer down uh, just behind the church there. Yeah. Uh, and I could go on for well, ages. This is the thing. I think I might do a separate episode about the Gaelic nature of of Mal. I think it'd be really good and yeah. it'd be lovely to do bits in in Gaelic about it as well. So we keep you know the keeping. Yes. Hearing to yeah. There's so much. I mean, uh, my head's just full of all these kind of things, you know. Yeah. And and uh, it was a, it was a, to sum up in a way, it was Gael Gauls, if you like to call. It. Tibbermurray that. But at the Aris Hall on games night when there was a concert or or whatever, or at the regatta time and uh, when there was a concert and a dance and all the rest of it, sometimes until five in the morning, mm-hmm. you know, and Bobby McLeod would get the pipes out and we'd all wow. march along wow. the, the front street to Tibbermurray and have the final re- reel on the on on Tibbermurray Pier. But the reason is when they sang the national anthem of Mull and Jalen Muller, every time there was a concert, it always either started or ended with that, and everybody could sing it, mm. and the rafters would ring with the with the sound of of Jalen uh, Muller, you know. Thank you so much, John. It was an absolute delight to get to spend time with you and hear some of your tales. I really look forward to catching up with you again soon to hear more. Thank you for listening wherever you are. I hope, if you're listening, as I said earlier as the episode goes out, that you have a lovely Christmas and a very fine new year. We'll now play out with Mull Gallic Choir in order to mark Elizabeth Jacks stepping down from conducting after many, many years behind the baton. Congratulations, Elizabeth. Take care wherever you are. Have a great Christmas. Another real good. I guess plenty of hour now that you care. Morning time. Shinaka day.